La, 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 la. <laughs> okay, we are live, and uh, this is Comfort E, my people, lesson four. And we're light locally, but we've got listeners remotely. Joshua, you're up. All right. So, uh, this week, we are looking at Isaiah 51 and 52. And, uh, boy, the two, two chapters couldn't be a whole lot different, more different, um, than the way that they go. Uh, Isaiah 51, uh, they both kind of have the same phrase, to wake up, awaken. Um, but the contrast here, I think, is a good way to kind of look at the difference in these two chapters. Yeah. Chapter 51, verse 17, Awaken, awaken, arise, Jerusalem, for you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, the dregs of the cup of weakness you have drained. Then, 52 verse 1, Awaken, awaken, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on the garments of your beauty, Jerusalem, the holy city. For no longer shall the uncircumcised, the unclean, continue to enter you. So this is a huge contrast. Chapter 51, all about sort of summarizing God, telling his people, you know, your, your, the wrath has been uh, satisfied. Um, your suffering is coming to an end. But recapping some of it, and really just some of the the, the incredible tragedy that befell Jerusalem as part of the exile, and then and the uh, whole people, and the whole people of Israel, right? The whole people of Israel, and then chapter fifty-two really uh, focused so much on. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, Rashi uh, summarizes it well. Simply say that this entire section is only talking about the redemption, you know, the last exile. So um, the uh, chapter fifty-two being all this very positive message. Yeah. I mean, j just. A quick aside uh, that we noticed as, as we were studying uh, this week is that just because the chapters are sequential doesn't mean they're chronologically right after one another. True. And if if you look at when Jerusalem was destroyed, whether the first time or the second time, the redemption, the what's in fifty two does not appear to have happened yet. Agreed. Agreed. So we've got at least 2,000 years between these chapters, and that's not evident from the text. There's not. At the same time, also, I think that chapter 51, prophecy tends to come in layers, so which you experience one time sometimes repeats itself later. Um, uh, you know, classic example is Messiah came once, he's coming again. You know, the first coming has heralds of the second coming but they're 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 two different things and, and one is sort of a greater fulfillment than the first mm -hmm. and whatnot mm -hmm. so um i also think 51 and 52 kind of play a role in other things and in future sense i mean this whole idea of we read the art scroll commentary portion we gave you guys in your in your study guide um they're contrasting talking about how the chapter 51 is this hard and heavy and tragedy tragic situation chapter 52 is this redemption and this is not um this is not an unusual dichotomy in Judaism, in the Bible. Um, I mean, I, th I, was, I, I thought about uh, Zechariah 14. Someone read Zechariah 14, 1 through... Let's read 1 through 5. I got it. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those 
those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall, be, shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Um, so again, you get that, that image of things are really bad, and then God steps in and, you know, wins the day easily. Uh, well, you, well, you bring up the point. Is this chapter 51, devastation of Jerusalem, something that's happened in the past, or is it something that will happen in the future, or yes? <laughs> right. I kind of think yes. I think there's definitely, even if the whole thing doesn't happen again in the future, because I think it's pretty clear from the passage that God's saying, like, look, you've satisfied. But then again, maybe that's part of what we're still in the midst of. We're in satisfaction of that wrath. You know, I think that's what we talked about a couple weeks ago, that God as judge... Um, He's not, he's not out for vindication or revenge. He's out for justice. So when his people suffer, that is, that is you know, meeting the punishment they deserve for their sins, but paid the penalty. eventually it runs out, you know? Um, well, that's, that's what uh, Daniel was saying, right? Right. The prophet Jeremiah said it would be 70 years because of this, that, and whatnot. And Daniel's going, it's been 70 years i think we should pray and say god i think we're done <laughs> i think we're done and they were and they were well and you know i, I want to be i want to just throw out there that you know this this idea of there being hardship upon israel um and god stepping in to redeem them sounding like an end times thing from zechariah 14 even i think also we're talking about isaiah 52 um revelation kind of plays with the same the same imagery it's not just a, a tanakh thing it also shows up the apostolic scriptures um, Revelation chapter 20, um, verse 7 through 10, it says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I hate it when and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of the fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, so again, same imagery. You've got this, all the, these, these, uh, this massive war brewing. God's people are in very big trouble. God, you know, is, is, essentially sneezes. All the bad guys die. And, you know, rip to the happily ever after part. So um, it is remarkable... Uh, in this, um, I mean, I guess it shouldn't really surprise us. I think about it. What what makes a good story, right? Conflict, fire, I mean, <laughs> fire makes a good story. Good. I was just reading all of last night in her little children's Bible, uh, the story of Elisha up on the mountain with I can't remember the king, but they were praying to Baal, and yeah. they're out there and they pray to Baal, Prophet, and, Prophet fire, Prophet, yeah. and then Elisha pours water all around, and then fire comes down, consumes all of that, and like God really. Works really well with fire to prove a point. <laughs> he does that. He, he does. does that. He does see that. And uh, and I think that that's um, and so but that but that 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 redemption. I mean, that's the thing. What do we see in Isaiah fifty-two? Let's still go back there just a little bit because I I want to just highlight something here. Um, Isaiah fifty-two is a, a large part about the about the uh, return of the exile. Um, God says 
that, uh, you know, and, and return of Jerusalem, the, the restoration of Jerusalem, those two things. Heralding good tidings, announcing salvation, saying to Zion, your God has manifested his kingdom. Um, they shall see, for eye to eye they shall see when the Lord returns to Zion. Burst out in song, sing together of ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has consoled his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Then verse 10, the Lord has revealed his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And we think about... On that day. Right, I think you think about this, um, this his imagery. It's like God is, is, is redeeming his people. He's redeeming his people, though, in a way to, to broadcast who he is to the nations. You know, it's not just a matter of, well, my people have suffered enough. I guess it's probably time to come and rescue them. But this is something that he's going to do for his own praise and renown around the world. Well, you know, I, th I think your dad's pointed out a couple of times in some of the Bible says we've done together that in Christianity, we almost always assume that salvation is spiritual. Right. And here, this appears to be extraordinarily physical. Right. And that's what's going to cause the nations to go, wow, what's going on here? Well, their God just reached in and physically saved them. Yeah. That's big. I mean, well, if you think about it, even even like the, uh, as we mentioned the, um, in, the, in the lesson, we have this sort of uh, prophetic appetizer that we're experiencing now. I mean... In, in 1948, when this nation of Israel was recreated, a, a I mean, literally out of the ashes of the Holocaust, um, and then in 1967, when they took on Jerusalem, well, they took they took on uh, multiple very major Arab an, uh, armies um, and defeated them in six days and took back Jerusalem. Since then, um, just within the Christian world, there has been a radical changing of. Of, of theology towards the Jewish people. And I think a lot of it has to do with seeing God's physical redemption of them. Amen. Realizing, wait a minute, so, you know, I think it's up until then, there was this, the constant, the, 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 the anti-Semitic mantra, I should say, of the past, that they had, they were Christ killers and that God hated them and he left them and now he has the church and, you know, he's, they're just around to be vessels of wrath, you know, whatever it might mm -hmm. be, became very untenable at that point. Yeah. Like, why? The theology had to change. It had to change. Because there is, again, an Israel. Yeah, and, it, but, and more importantly, there was an Israel in a way that was clearly miraculous. You couldn't, it was very, very difficult for a religious person to see what was happening and say, oh yeah, crowds of Egyptians climbing out of their tanks because they see mirages. That's normal. That happens. <laughs> you, know, that, uh, you, you know, the idea that somehow um, you know, Holocaust survivors with Molotov cocktails were stopping Syrian tanks in 1948 was kind of hard to believe. So the only thing that made any sense at all was that God was working miracles for his people. Yeah. And at least for the religious. The non-religious, they chose to explain it away. But the religious, I think, really, it, it resonated. And so... I think it resonated with a lot of non-religious Americans as well. You, yeah. had, you had American pilots going over there to help fly in their Air Force. Mm-hmm some of whom were not Jewish. Mm -hmm. They just saw the hand of God giving these people a chance. And some of the stories these guys write about is extraordinary. And I don't know if, if, if you know off the top of your head, but I, their Air Force was teeny, teeny, weeny. And yet, <laughs> they won. I think they had one plane, actually, that was theirs. Yeah, it's very effective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, they have other people to help. That's them, where I mean. other people have jumped in, but 
we're, we're talking a handful of people here. <laughs> you know, if they had 20, maybe even 100 planes against what they were fighting against, yeah. it was extraordinary. And some of their, uh, their tactics of, of wiping out the Air Force of some of the armies that were about to come Yeah, in 67. Ahead of time. Yeah, that was, that was, was huge. Extraordinary. But, I mean, that was the thing that was so fascinating. In 1948, you really saw, I think, so much of the miracles yeah. um, in terms of the odds. 1967, you saw the miracles in terms of the speed. I mean, to, to, to completely obliterate three enemy nations, I mean, to the point where, like, they actually had to stop the war because they were taking over half of Egypt. Yeah. Um, they, uh, the, was just phenomenal. And, and I think it's interesting. It's, we read through this passage in Isaiah 52. The focus is all about Jerusalem. Not to say that the rest of Israel doesn't get redeemed. It does. But Jerusalem is the centerpiece because that is the place where God's name dwells. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's any surprise that you mentioned Israel, America being friends with Israel. What's amazing is that America was like mm, kind of on the fence about Israel until after they took Jerusalem. Yeah. It's like that seemed to, which is bizarre because actually the Americans weren't particularly happy about it. Most of the world hasn't been particularly happy about it. But it's like that happened and all of a sudden there's just, there's just a little more pull in their direction to be like, okay, this something like Gami though, right? You know, well, if this is of God, probably don't want to be his way. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, we see in our in the portion we're reading this week about, or was it last week? Last week, with Jerusalem being eventually the place where he would choose to place his name. Right. Yeah, you you got to be really irreligious to ignore actual scripture. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 is, it is an amazing thing to look at what God has done, is doing, and you know, as, as, as President Trump has moved our embassy to Jerusalem and others have followed suit, that's a big deal. It is, and actually, yeah. It kind of sets up some of the stuff that we're going to see later on. Right. I absolutely agree. And I think that um, you mentioned... The word there, and I said we we tied into in our in our study. Look, seeing, physically seeing. You know, I think that um, as as you we were talking earlier, so much times um, Christianity we get so caught up in spiritualization of stuff, and I think part of that is because we live in an era that doesn't have a whole lot of physical miracles happen on a daily basis that we see, we re that are easy, they're obvious. I think part of that's intentional. I think that God tends to speak to a culture through. Um, in large part through what uh, how was I looking for in a way that they can perceive and understand in a way that at some level kind of matches or indisputable no, no no I think I think at some level he, he likes the dispute he, he wants to match it's a good it's a good throw, word throughout there but I think in my opinion he wants to kind of he wants to challenge people to believe to have faith so you see when Moses goes into Egypt he goes toe to toe with him in miracles the Egyptians, the, the the Pharaoh, the tradition is what you come to, you bring beans to Bean Town. Like I mean, come on, we're the king of miracles and magic. Like why why would you do that? That's what we do. That's what we do. We invented it. What are you talking about? And and so God sends Moses the miracles. You know, I think it's a fascinating day. My my uncle Bob, he travels the world and does. Uh, he speaks uh, evangelism and whatnot in different places. He goes to some of these third world countries where there's lots of witchcraft and whatever else. God does crazy miracles out there. I mean, people being healed and, you know, thunderclouds disappearing and stuff like that. Sure, it's like... Totally, totally. Yeah, but, you know, in this part of the world, I think people would either explain it away or just get freaked out. 
And that's not really like God's mission either. I think that God's desire is kind of like Yeshua's book in parables. I think, he, I think God wants to be visible enough that people can see him if they choose to. And I think that in our, in our part of the world, that doesn't happen as often because we're, we're God's speaking to us in other ways. And, and I think that, so because of that, I think that Christianity has become, um, has a tendency to have become a bit um, uh, numb to miracles. Almost kind of like we don't, we don't believe that they're going to happen anymore. Right. And so we kind of assume everything is spiritualized. Actually, I think, that, I think you're right. I think it is about the language, you know, the cultural language. I mean, we have... Just sit and think about 150 years ago, 150 years ago, we live in an age of miracles. Mm-hmm. I mean, life expectancy, everybody born today can expect to live mid-80s, mid-90s. Easy. Everybody. Easy. You know, exceptions are, are fast dwindling. I mean, everybody eats as much as they want. Everybody has a car. Everybody is wealthy and, and global in a global standard and um it's almost as if it's almost as if that's such a profound miracle that we don't believe god had any role in it because it's so common and it and it's like you say it's because it's it's almost like it when you put it in terms of magic in egypt it's almost like i'll show you how good i am and you still won't see it right Good point. I mean, it, to me, it's just, I mean, I mean, you wake up every day and you go, how is it possible that we know what we know? Right. In Western civilization, you know, it's like... Well, look, the Greek the Greek concept of the muse, even though obviously it's idolatrous, um, I definitely believe in, the, in that idea when it comes to divine inspiration, Absolutely. even with things like science and technology. Absolutely. I think that... Um, even, I think that you, know, you read uh, people who study these types of things and it doesn't seem like there's a... There is almost this unusual awakening. Some things are some things take a lot of repeated practice, and then it's kind of like it's just discovered. Other things, it's like pop into someone's head. Never thought of that before. It's a great idea. Let's do that. So you know, we're looking at biplanes or whatever else, and thinking 150 years ago, people struggling. How could anything ever fly like a bird? Can't fathom it. Take a piece of taste piece of foam board. And an hour and a half later, you can make an airplane that flies around, you know, <laughs> fly, flies around for however long you want, and, and, and nobody even bats an eye. I mean, it's amazing. It is. But, that's, but my point to what I talked about earlier is that I think that God speaks to us in the language of today. And so because of that, though, the danger, I think, is that, is that we could become so jaded Un- to that. A lack of thankfulness. Like a lack of thankfulness and a lack of awareness to recognize the miracles that God does. That we could even go so far as to have the gall to assume that God won't do physical miracles that you could see beyond what we are experiencing now. I think what I was actually going towards, though, with the, something that's being indubitable is for the world today. Like, as with Pharaoh, and you were saying, oh, turning, turning water to, like, I mean, bloody water. But my guys can do that, too. That's no big deal. But the Lord coming down with his wrath and showing to the world... Okay, now this is real. Eh? There's fire coming down from the heavens now. God is showing us of his, his power. We probably missed a boat on this sometime <laughs> when they told us, about, when they were trying to teach us. We missed a boat here. Like, it made a complete, indisputable show of God's wrath and God's power. Mm. That's what I had in my mind. It was like, 
no one in the world of any religion, of any background, anywhere can say, I don't know. That, that seems like a natural <laughs> phenomenon to me. We're definitely yeah, heading that there. That might happen again tomorrow. That can happen again. And to your point, Isaac, that that's, that. exactly, yeah, that's, right. that's exactly what, I, what we're reading about here in Isaiah 52. See, that's my point. I think that as, like, as, as Westerners, we have gotten to a stage where we don't believe that God's going to do that. Mm-hmm. But we, he's going to. He said he would. He's going to specifically work miracles that no one's going to be able to dispute. Um, and that they're going to see with their eyes. I mean, we read in Revelation, even the re- rebellious who are refusing to acknowledge God, they're not refusing to acknowledge that there is a God. <laughs> well, actually, the devil, people who are in evolution, they probably won't believe. But everybody else, they'll, they'll all believe. <laughs> but but in, the, in Revelation, you know, you got these, these people who are cursing God. Their, their problem is not figuring out, is there a God, or who God is. Their issue is obeying said God. But, um, or, or, quite frankly, even before obeying, even acknowledging him, they may believe there's a God. But that, yeah. that one, is the God. <laughs> yeah, you're right. not the boss of me. Right, yeah, it's right. like, uh, I, you know, they, they made some movies where I think, you know, there wasn't Liam Neeson God in one of those movies. He, he didn't win. You know, something like that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But he did get his family back. Um, <laughs> um, but instead, I think the, the, the point, Isaac said, indisputable. God's going to do things that we can see. And as part of that, Messiah is going to be involved. And so I want to take us to uh, Matthew 24. Um we're going to expand our passage we read about just a little bit from uh, what I gave you in your study. Let's go to verse 15, Matthew 24. We're read 15 through 31. And as you read through this, or someone reads through this for me, um, listen and kind of think about that Isaiah 51 52 dichotomy where things are really, really bad, then God steps in and he rescues his people. Yes, sir. 24 15? Yes. How far? Through 31. Got it. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place let them your understanding and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now no and never will be and if those days had not been cut short no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short then if anyone says to you says to you look here's the messiah or there he is don't believe it for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead straight if possible even the elect say see I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You're going to see it. 
Amen. In fact, what is his what is his sign, right? What is his point? He's like, there could be a whole lot of people claiming to be Messiah. They're gonna even do miracles. What's he say? It's like it's gonna be so obvious when Messiah is here. It's not gonna be like, okay, I got a secret for you. Messiah showed up. He's in the New Mexico wilderness. Let's go. We're like Andrew. I think we've seen, I think we've met the Messiah. Yeah, you maybe. You should come and see. Yeah, I think Tribulation so. Tribulation has never been seen, nor will ever be seen before. Absolutely That sounds unique. really extreme. Yeah. yeah, it sounds really bad. Top shelf. But that's my point, though. It's like Isaiah 51, 52. You have this, this intense negativity, this, this, this exile, and just when things seem to be bleakest, God steps in um, in a way that is dramatic that the entire world can see. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and thinking about this passage, um, it's interesting. When you look at Isaiah 52, I thought this was fascinating to me. I think, look, so we were talking, it's pretty obvious, I think, when you read it, that a lot of it has is talking about return from exile. It's talking about return of the people to Israel, or return, uh, return to Jerusalem. And then verse 11 says, Turn away, turn away, get out of there. Touch no unclean one. Get out of its midst. Purify yourselves, you who bear the Lord's vessels. And this uh, uh, Rashi's commentary says, out of the midst of the exile, for all these last consolations refer only to the last exile. So, okay, so we're talking about return from exile. Then, this is cool. You who bear the Lord's vessels. This is Rashi's commentary about this. Chabad.org. You, the priests and the Levites, who carried the vessels of the Holy One, blessed be he in the desert. Wait, in the desert? Parenthetical statement from Rashi. From here is proof of the resurrection of the dead. So Rashi is talking about a passage, the same verse that he says specifically refers to these last consolations refer only to the last exile. The same verse he's talking about return of the exile communities is linked to the resurrection. Well, I think that we've got some imagery that certainly parallels that. We just read about what? What is Adam? Are we seeing things? We're also hearing things. Hearing things. We've got the shofar. We've got the shofar. Show. The last shofar, if you're, um, uh, I'm going to just go on a whim. I think Yeshua's probably not going to make his second coming during the month of Elul. There are a lot of shofars. <laughs> it's not the last one. But uh, there is. First of Tishri, maybe. Maybe. Rosh Hashanah, maybe. There are some shofars that There's also one last in, in Yom Kippur. But at some point, the shofars end. At the last shofar. Um, let's read that passage in, in Thessalonians, because that's such a great one. Uh, someone could look up uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Thirteen through 18? But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Did you get that same imagery you were talking about Yeshua? He talks about how he's going to come down, he's going to call, and they're going to come from the four winds. Uh, look at Isaiah 27, verse 13. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Um, there is this interesting parallel, linkage, I would even say, between the return, the great return of the exiles and the resurrection of the dead. Um, it certainly seems to me that if they are not part of the same event, they're so chronologically so close and they're so experientially similar that they just come together in Paul's mind. It's like the, the snare. Right. If they're not the same event, they are so close together, they are associated together. Right, they're associated. And I think this is important because um, Rashi makes a statement, or excuse me, Rashi, Rambam uh, makes a statement that uh, talking about uh, Messiah, he specifically highlights gathering the dispersed of Israel is a key component of who Messiah is. And Yeshua agrees. He specifically, in talking about his second coming, specifically highlights that, not only as one of a handful of things he's going to do, but as the thing that he is going to do that is going to make it abundantly clear he is the Messiah, and Messiah has returned. Yes, sir. Well, just, it reminded me of, the, of the, one of the passages you have to look up to, Zechariah 12, 7, where it says, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. Mm. It's like, it, it, it's not Jerusalem. Otherwise, otherwise, you might mistake that well, it's only just Jerusalem. Said so he will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass Judah. Mm -hmm. Same idea. So it's like a hierarchy kind of thing. Yeah. So who's going to rise first? You know, and it reminds us also of 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 uh, Paul's injunction that the good news should be to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. In this regard, it's very specific to Judah first. Well, and then there's also the tradition of Judaism that um, the resurrection of the dead, those who resurrected in the land of Israel, they've got a much more direct path to that resurrection. Everybody else apparently has to roll through underground passages to make their way to the land of Israel before they get resurrected. Um, but that, that also creates a sense of priority, a hierarchy of sorts, um, which kind of parallels some of what we're reading in Thessalonians. I think it's important that we recognize that we're reading about Israel. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So... The Gentiles, if not joined to Israel, seem to be left out of this. And the same would, uh, would be the case if you look at uh, Jeremiah 31. 31, right? So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with all the Gentile Christians. Right. No. Uh, the Southern Baptists. A covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, praise the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And he goes on to talk about it. Same thing in Isaiah 11, verse 12. He will raise a signal. We talked about that word in the first week. Uh, banner for the nations. And will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. It's the, the two parts of Israel 
that are going to be gathered. And if if we're not joined to Israel, I just wonder what what's going to happen to you. You know, you're in the you're in the you're the wrong camp there. Yeah, they. Um, it reminds me too of that. I think it's in Ezekiel where the um, God prophesies. He says that these the, the latter redemption, the exile redemption, the exile from the north. I think is how he defines it. Will be so dramatic they will forget the Exodus. It'll it'll pale in comparison. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. I mean, it's been what three thirty five three thirty thousand thirty five hundred years since the Exodus, and uh, we're, we're still, still eating matzah, still telling the story. Um, and these in God's prophecy is that the that the final redemption will be so dramatic that it will overshadow even the Exodus from Egypt. And so I think, um, so it's very clear that that's going to be dramatic and huge, but you're right, absolutely right. It is centrally focused on the people of Israel. Let me read through Isaiah 52 and 51. I mean, it's all about Jerusalem. It's all about the people of Israel. Um, the Gentiles, those of us who have the privilege of being included in that, we're, we're hangers on, you know? It's not about us. Amen. Um, to that end, I would like to take a look here at the, um, at the libretto. We have... I, I hope you've been reading the libretto, and we've had you read it during the uh, the, the study. Um, if you haven't listened Aren't to it, we supposed to. I know, right? Well, I had to sing this one. You should. Yes, there's some really good ones here. Um, uh, Incorruptible. There's yeah, there are some really good ones. There's a great um, a great solo at the very beginning, but I know that my redeemer liveth, and he shall stand day upon the earth. Um, this particular part three is probably the part that no one knows is actually in the libretto. Um, I think it's really funny if you've ever been to a, um, uh, a performance of Messiah around Christmas or Easter. It probably folk, probably ended at the end of uh, of part two with the Hallelujah chorus. They might have thrown in the last uh, stanza of um, of the part three, which is from Revelation. But just speaking, I don't know. That there's as much focus on say the portions, but but uh, but Charles Jenner who wrote the that pulled together the text. And handle to put it to music, they recognized that um, Messiah's story is not about death or even his resurrection. His the reason why he came was to accomplish redemption for, for people. Amen. And it's not just a spiritual redemption. Um, so, uh, do any of you happen to have the libretto in front of you? Yes. Right here. Oh, if you, Dad, if you would read, um, let's read stanzas, let's say, let's go ahead and do 45 through 51, and then we'll go to somebody else. Okay. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Hallelujah. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Who would have known that that's Job? Yeah, really. Yeah. Man. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the firstfruits of them that sleep. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. There's that word again. This is, this is like, and the trumpet shall sound. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Incorruptible. And we shall be chained, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. This shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who, give us, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, you got the last few there? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, verse 52 and 53. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. I was singing that last one in my head as I was singing me too. <laughs> yeah, such a great one. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him, be unto him. Um, but uh, <laughs> this whole passage, I mean, again, you see the same imagery before. There's trumpets, there's resurrection, there's, and it's all centered around Messiah. You know, Messiah's death and resurrection ends up um, being a catalyst for the resurrection of the dead to be to be a, a happy story. Um, but then at the same time, he is he's treated interestingly enough, um, and we didn't read as much in this in these passages, but of course Paul really makes a big deal out of it. And the parallel of him and Adam, you know, there's there's this first Adam, second Adam, first Adam as in Adam all last die, Adam. so forth. Last Adam becomes like this this bookend, right, to the story. Um, what's interesting about this, and I thought this was really weird, uh, in a really cool way. So there is a um, I started Googling around, curious about what Judaism says about resurrection. Um, and I came across this article written by uh, Rabbi Shimon.com. I don't really know who he is, but he's... he's His a, last name is .com. I know, right? Rabbi Shimon.com is his website. He, uh, he, he pulls in some pieces of the Zohar about resurrection. Um, and specifically was talking about the uh, Abraham buying Machpelah, uh, the, the Hebron cave, which is where he's buried today. Um, you can go visit it as long as you go at the right time with the right armed guards, but it's there. Um, anyway, one of the things that he's come to, or is discussing I thought was really interesting is he buys the land from Ephron, Ephron the Hittite. Um, his name, according to this guy, comes from the root word afar, which is dust, which of course then launches into a very interesting conversation about dust. Um, uh, the Zohar has all uh, one of their traditions about um, creation is that God took dust afar from the earth and spread it to four directions to create Adam. Okay, that sounds interesting. Four directions, about res uh, the, the redemption of the exile from the four directions of the earth. And then it says, when it says, for you are dust and unto dust shall return, we see the past and the future. It doesn't say into the ground as in the death of the body, but to afar, to dust which is the seed of its creation and its resurrection. In other words, it's almost like within that curse that God levies to Adam, there is this promise that in the same way that I created you from, from dust, I'm going to basically turn you back into something that I can create with again. Um, and uh, the Zohar has this really funny little tradition about there's this one, one bone somewhere in your neck that was the original bone 
that God made Adam. It's like you know, he made Eve out of the side, right? So he starts with one bone in your neck to make Adam. He starts with that, and then in the resurrection, he's gonna, that's the one bone that doesn't, that doesn't decay. And God's going to start working on that one, and it's going to get nice and soft. Then it's going to be like, it's like a, a starting point, and the whole rest of the body just flowers out of that. Anyway, kind of weird. The reason why I bring this up... Um, Besides the fact that I thought it was kind of cool. You're Why? A growing hamburger in a lab. I know, right? <laughs> from, from genes from a cow, man. I know, right? God can't use a bone. It's like that's nothing. <laughs> so my point, though, in bringing this up, I think, is um, I, I like that it parallels to Adam. So there's a tradition that Machpelah is also where Adam is buried. Um, according to the Zohar, it's also apparently the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Cool. Cool, right? Um, the point that I'm trying to get to is that um, that Paul sees this parallel too in looking at the Adams. He sees Messiah as a uh, counter Adam, as a secondary Adam, as a as an Adam to fulfill sort of the mission of Adam, but in tying it specifically to the resurrection of the dead, uh, which I thought was kind of a fun balance here with the Zohar, who sees Adam as also a as a duality, sees him in both death but also in resurrection. Um, the Judaism is is is, uh, is ex- uh, the Judaism of today is very very uh, proud of the resurrection theology. It's a it's a big part of their Pharisee. theology yeah, because they came from Pharisees. That's where it comes from, right? I mean, that was the whole the whole difference. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They lost. So and Judaism disappeared from all of history. Yeah. Well, you know, when you don't believe in resurrection. Morons. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to make a comeback. Yeah. So. Or dead. That's it. That's it. So. Um, but rabbinic Judaism, it, you know, flowered from the Pharisaic tradition. Right, and they and their principles around resurrection have influenced them so heavily today. So that um, you know, it's interesting. There's uh, um, Judaism stands out as a very interesting religion when it comes to resurrection. Resurrection, I understand. The resurrection is definitely in ancient religions and whatnot, but um, that kind of concrete imagery of it, I don't know. Not resurrection to this life. Right. So much as a resurrection to a better new life, yeah. Or a regurgitation. Yeah. You know, spiritualization. Well, yes, that's true. But rats now have to be a dog. But a but a physical resurrection. You blew it that time. Let's try again. But I can't wait to be a unicorn. So the imagery of this, though, this resurrection to like a, a new heaven, new earth, kind of an apocalyptic vision, um, is 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 unusual at that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, I actually had a history teacher. Of course, they came from a secular background, and you know, Isaiah is written three hundred years later than it really was. That kind of thing, because they don't like the fact that he makes you know prophecies that come true or whatever. Um, and so they're saying, you know, based on that, you know, it's obvious that when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, Persia, they were influenced by Zoroaster, who's the, the religion of that era, Zoroaster. location, Persia, which also has some of this, you know, kind of uh, uh, end times, heavenly, you know, apocalyptic kind of theology. So they were saying, well, see, this is this is where this is where Isaiah and whatnot, Daniel, are getting it from. So I went up to my history teacher after class was over and said, well, if, if Isaiah was actually written when Isaiah says it was written, like during those kings and not later, then exactly right. Could maybe they, Zoroaster could have gotten it from him. And my history teacher, to his credit, actually said, 
yeah, I guess that that could have happened that way. You know, assuming your first presumption is true. True. But it's like well, good for him. Possible. Um, I think makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the point being is that uh, you know. God's got this vision, this plan. It's been around for a really, really long time. You could go back all the way into Deuteronomy, um, and there's this, Im- there's, there's, there's images, imprints of, of resurrection there. Mm-hmm. Job, you quote, we quoted at the very beginning right. there. Shocking. I mean, Job is considered by most theologians to be the oldest book of the Bible, um, and even if that's not true, even if maybe he was, you know, in the womb being carried to Egypt, as you know, some of the Jewish tradition goes, the point is very, very old. Um, uh, Moses uh, is concerned about in conquering Canaan partly because he's not sure if you know Job is still alive there and his righteousness is going to be enough to kind of stem the tide. So um, Job is Job is precursor, right? It's very beginning, but he gets the resurrection. Um, you know, we're going to be even so far talking about Adam, right? right? This is God's plan from the beginning. So, but this is but the thing that's amazing is that God chooses to use Mashiach as the as the piece, as the catalyst, as the tool. And so as we get through this redemption, um, God is going to bring Messiah back into history as part of, the, of the, the method to bring back his people, but bring them all together. I mean, that's one of the things, like I said, we're reading from Isaiah 52, and Rashi is not only talking about the exile, but he's talking about the Levites who carried the original vessels of the Lord in the wilderness. And so it's like God's got, it's almost like, so we, we talk a lot about this idea that God has, is sort of outside time, right? It's not like, you know, he's not, he's not experiencing it like we are. It's more like he just kind of sees it like some sort of panorama in front of him. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to um, uh, wait all, on things. It's all one page. Right. Um, and so, but if you think about it, in a way, it's almost like God wants us to experience that with him too. He's going to bring all of his people together in one place simultaneously with the same type of bodies, right? We're all going to be resurrected into this into this um, uh, advanced physical existence mm-hmm. that we're going to all share together. And he's literally, as my, you know, my mom loves to have her whole family all in one place, you know, so as well my father-in-law. He's real big into that too. My dad does too. Um, and my mother-in-law. But the point being that God's everyone has to be most most old people are into that. Into that, God is too. God wants his whole family all in one place. Well, you know, if you spend any time reading the sages, uh, and and you're looking at resurrection, uh, I think as we look at Christian teaching, the focus is always heaven, right, or the end, right, right. Let's just let's just put it that way. Um, but as I've been studying, preparing for the you know, end times for dummies, it, there's often very little said about the olam haba. Very little. Right? The whole focus is, as you were pointing out, Mashiach and the fact that he's going to gather his people. But then he will reign for a thousand years. And oh, let's talk about what it's going to be like right here in Jerusalem in during that thousand years. I mean, you could have a grape in a little wheelbarrow in the corner of your home and you're going to drink wine for a year from the one grape. I, My father-in-law really likes That to me problems. is heaven on earth. There it is. <laughs> but the bottom line is their, their, their focus is on Messiah and his reign. 
right. more often than not. And there's a lot written about that. And I think that if if we if we believe the scripture, then we can look mathematically and see why the, the final redemption would cause the Egyptian redemption to pale. Yet 70 people walk into Egypt. How many left? Conservatively, six million people? I heard six two million or, two guys? Or three. Two or three million? Whatever, couple million. If you take every Jew, male or female, throughout all of time, who look to the coming of the Mashiach, and then add the weird Gentiles like us that have joined themselves to Israel because they believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. That is a lot of people. And if all those people are gathered, as Paul said, as you had us read, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 2, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed and we're all standing somewhere in Jerusalem. Wow, that's a lot of people for a long time. That'd be a cool young Kippur. Amen. And I think that's the, uh, I think that's that's something that that God is so working towards. We talk about the, the two Adams. It's like God didn't create this world as, um, as as like a as an oops or as like a as like an interim. It wasn't it wasn't like God thought. Well, I'm not really. I don't think I have heaven quite ready for everybody. So let's just make this world first. Oh darn! They sinned. Now I'm gonna have to find a way to fix that. Um, oh thank goodness we fixed it. Now I can you know. Get everybody out of here. But this world was created on purpose. And I think that when we talk about Takuna Lam redeeming the world, repairing the world, it's a day-to-day -day thing. But it's also about it's a it's a it's a global it's a it's a cosmic picture for God. God wants to literally redeem, repair the entire physical universe. Mm -hmm. He wants there to be a time frame when this universe, this world, functions the way that it was meant to in the garden, where everybody is serving him. Where everything is, you know, healthy and happy and functioning correctly. I mean, they're talking about like, you know, the lame loser guy who, you know, has has lots of personal issues. He's making it to a hundred, no problem, because uh, everything is just so incredibly awesome. We don't even talk about how long the righteous live, because you know, they're apparently drinking grapes one at a time for a year. I heard so. uh, in a book that I can't recall that I read like two years ago. Um, this guy's concept of the Bible was God moving his throne. That was the story of the Bible, that God was moving his throne from heaven to earth. That, he said, that's, that's the whole story. There's a whole lot going on in between there, but ultimately, that's what happens. He moves his throne puts it in Jerusalem, the place where he chose to put his name. And that's where he reigns, in Jerusalem, because that's where his throne is. And then the Olam Haba, a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And there it is. So his throne has been moved. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about the new Jerusalem. Even that is not, that whole passage, the end of Revelation, which is also 
uh, unique in that we don't get a whole lot of insights into the Elohim Haba uh, anywhere in Scripture. That's not heaven either. Right. That's here. Yeah. Um, the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, uh, from heaven, uh, and it's where God will reign. And we hear all these physical imagery again. You hear about um, drinking from the river of life. You hear about eating from the fruit of the, uh, the tree of life and the the leaves for the healing of the nations. You see, there will be no sun. There will always be daytime. Well, but that's a different. Again, you, have, you, you can you can hear sounds and see sights and taste things. This is a physical universe yeah. that God is cre- creating anew. Well, you're, you're one of your dad's Bible side. I can't remember which one it was. I mean, back to the garden. I mean, that was the whole idea, right? We were in the garden. We blew it. We got kicked out. God fixed it so we can go back to the garden. We can't get back there now. How do, what's the way? Or who is the way? It's better, it's better than Stargate. <laughs> right. Mm. Right. Especially because it doesn't end with, you know, really the Egyptian pharaoh. Yeah, well, <laughs> that helps. Um, well, that would, expi- that would explain the mindset of those who think they can oppose God. Right. They're going, well, you know. Okay, so advanced technology, but eventually, <laughs> yeah, thousand years worth of technological gains, we think we can take over. That's right. It doesn't end too well. Doesn't end too well. Actually, that's the irony. Is it's almost like God's holding back there. You know, in, in earlier revelation, Messiah comes. He's holding back, Absolutely. and he, uh, the sword comes out of his mouth, and it's a very, it's a very uh, visceral, physical, almost kind <laughs> of conflict. Um, you know, and you can almost imagine, you know, the next. It's kind of like the Tower of Babel, if you recall. Uh, the tradition around the Tower of Babel is that uh, the people of Babel they wanted to defeat God, so they thought, well, last time he sent a flood, we built a really, really high tower. I think we can outlast him. Oh, oh, we can put pitch on the on the bricks. Right. So, so it won't, it won't get it'll wet. It'll be waterproof. It'll be waterproof. <laughs> um, nice try. And it's like, and so God's God's like, and you thought I was using water again. Come on, fire this time. Um, and that's exactly almost like what happens at the second the second judgment there. Uh, Messiah comes in first time with the sword of his mouth. The second time, it's just fire from heaven. It's not, not even battle. any tribulation first. It's just like boom. It's gone. It's not even. There's not even a battle. It's just. Smell that? <laughs> that was the end. Yeah, that wasn't even goddamn. So yeah. as you, so the point though that I'm getting at, I guess, if we're talking about all this things we've been saying in physical creation, is that God wants to save the physical earth. He's going to, re- and this redemption is going to be a physical redemption of a physical people. And he's going to do you do it through a um, through, through really the physical manifestation of himself, which is Messiah. Um, for whatever reason, God created the physicality of this earth not as a test, not as a shadow, but actually as something of the end all. The goal is a perfected physical existence, not an escape from it. That's good. Um, and that is really what he is going to do, um, not only with us, but also with himself. So Mashiach, of course, is I think the perfect vehicle. To usher in a physical perfection because he is physical perfection. Right. Yeah. Um, the first fruits of those that have been raised from the dead. Right, exactly right. So he you know, ties it all in. So he might be preeminent in all things. Uh, any final comments on this particular lesson? I appreciate you gentlemen uh, joining me and uh, carrying me along. Any comments for our, our viewers online? <laughs> I only got a, uh, a greeting from Brock. Other than that, everybody's been silent. Hey, Brock, I heard oh, 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 wait. I was wrong. Holy cow. Oh, Brock, Brock, has, uh, Brock has left an entire missive. Let me read it. 
Go for it. We live in a time when there... I beg your pardon. We live in a time where, for some reason, we believe we know everything about the universe. Mm. The reality is we know next to nothing. Looking at the growth in technology in even the last 50 years will tell you how little we really know. We climb onto our high horse and proclaim we're the smartest people to ever live because we have iPhones. <laughs> Yet there was a time when another generation said the same thing but thought the earth was flat. Yet they had to figure out how to use the stars to navigate the oceans. No small feat. To make such great advances in tech over such a short period of time, how can we say... How can we then say, oh, we can close the book on whether or not God is real because now we have science. Mm -hmm. To me, the advances we've made in science only support the belief that there is a God. Everything we discover points to intelligent design. None of it is an accident. Agreed. I agree with him. And I would go further and say Daniel 12 makes it clear that in, in the last days... Knowledge will increase. You need to write that up in an essay, man. That yeah. was really good. Publish that. That's good. Men will men will go to and fro, and we should knowledge will increase. Yeah, this is this is prophetic. Absolutely, that we would learn more, and I guess get arrogant. Well, and it's interesting if you think of it earlier talking about Babel. I mean, today feels very Babel-like. I mean, I think that um, we Brock mentioned the last fifty years. I think one of the uh, what's funny is if you watch all of the uh, the, the movies from the science fiction movies. Um, Aliens. What? Aliens? Oh, yeah. Obvious, it's obvious. The aliens brought the intelligence. Right, right. The aliens brought the intelligence. Right, right. <laughs> That's Stargate, right. yeah. Yeah. But, no, the, but the thing we, we oftentimes see is uh, all the movies were trying to push us towards uh, uh, super advanced transportation. But um, the, the it's actually the communication technology that we have exceeded beyond anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that and why it has grown and developed so well is because it's when humans can communicate. This is battle, right? That's when right. humans can work together... They can accomplish anything. God actually said that, or something similar to that. So um, I don't. I definitely feel like as you, it definitely feels more and more. Of course, it could, to Brock's point, just simply be a feeling that those of us feel like because we happen to be here. But feels more and more like we're getting towards the end of of uh, of man's advancement. Soon um, in our days, without uh, outside of God's reign. Um, yeah, and, and of course, as a result, there is that arrogance. Same like Babel had. Um, we know how that story ended. So, and that actually ended off. They got it off off easy. I mean, yeah, they just had to move. They just had to move. <laughs> uh, and moving could be fun. <laughs> can be. Uh, discover new cultures, new backgrounds. <laughs> oh man. So uh, yes, we um, things things are hurtling towards the end. Hopefully, um, and Messiah will be here, and we'll see him. Amen. Dad, would you close this prayer? But Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you use. Thank you for Joshua and Juliana who prepared this study for us. Father, we thank you for your word that you have not left us uh, without answers, but that you have given us hope. And the hope is for a resurrection. And when we all will see you, we thank you for that. And we ask that you would strengthen us with this knowledge, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you see about your computer, Dad? And...